G'day, Phil Gould here. You are listening to Set Restart, the podcast which tackles all things rugby league, from grassroots levels right through to the professionals. No topic gets the red card on Set Restart. Welcome to Set Restart. My name's Craig O'Donnell. And I'm Joe Morley. And on this week's show, our guest, I'm, I'm really excited to, to tell you that joining us tonight, we've got a um, former international rugby league player, Leeds legend and current Sky Sports commentator, Barry McDermott, joining us on the show. Barry, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, gents. Thanks for the invitation. I feel very blessed, privileged, honoured, all those lovely words, but I just co- I think it just comes down to the fact that I'm very cheap. In fact, <laughs> not only am I very cheap, I'm actually zero pounds so the fact that I'm free means I get a gig on most podcasts. But happy to talk about the great game. Looking forward to hopefully 2021. And um, do you know the thing I learned last year? And obviously what I did for, for Sky changed massively. But the thing I missed more than anything was I missed the fans. I missed the atmosphere. I missed that that instant feedback you get from a, from a roar or a boo or a chant or a cheer. So... So, yeah, looking forward to next year. Fingers crossed we won't be without those fans for too long. Well, that's how we've kind of, like, approached it, Barry, isn't it? Like, we've obviously we saw your article that you've done with uh, Hull Daily Mail and we've reached out to you on, on LinkedIn and we kind of want to get you... You were sp- speaking really passionately about about the Hull derby and that you that you missed the fans. It wasn't the same when Hull and Rovers both played in St Helens and it was out of the city. So, and obviously, you've covered a lot of Hull derbies um, previously. Um, I think you put in the article that you're now being bumped up to the uh, Wigan and Saints derby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. at, at the risk of offending everybody on 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 Humberside, obviously. Um, I used to get correct. I used to get tipped up and corrected all the time. It's always been Humberside to me. I believe yeah. that's not the correct terminology in in today's society. But I've always. You know, I've always grown up on on those tough visits down the M62. Hull is a real is a real passionate hotbed for our sport, and um, yeah, it was always sort of splitting the the assets in, in inverted commas on a on a you know going back five or ten years when um, when Eddie and Steve all were the were the absolute legends of our commentary team, and it'd be Eddie and Steve all doing the glamorous Wigan and Saints derby. And get those two numpties to to travel up to all, and they can do the, they can do the other game because I think they've looked at it and thought, well, actually, it doesn't really matter what goes on in the stands on the field. Them two Herberts can handle themselves anyway, so we'll put them in the cauldron. So, can you remember your first derby that you covered, and what was like your first impressions? Were you a bit surprised about how intense it is? Yeah, because I mean, obviously, as a Leeds player, you go to those two grounds as a Leeds player, and there's a there's a healthy, I think, a healthy hatred. I don't think you can have healthy hatred. There's a healthy respect from people of Hull for for the for the Leeds club and what they've achieved and what they represent and how how they go about their business. Dare I say it? But um, when I went as a commentator, I just felt the from my feet 
to the top of my head. I felt the, especially when you go to Hulkiar, you know, the gantry at Hulkiar, you're right on top of that main stand. And when a try is scored, the whole stand shakes. So you do feel it throughout your body. But when there's a whole Hulkiar derby at KC Stadium and it's packed and it's packed to the rafters, it's, there's nothing better. So what what was my first derby? I can't even remember my first derby. They're all as... As yeah. impressive and as important as important as one another, and there's been there's been some really good ones. I do remember. I'm not sure what year it was, when I think Jamie Shaw scored a scored a try in the last minute. It was at Hull KR. Hull FC were losing with about 20 25 minutes to go, and then it tried, try, try, and the black and whites came away with a victory. And I remember it because got a lot of time for Radders. And at that time, Lee Radford, who seems to have been under pressure all the way through his career as a coach at, um, at Hull FC, but he was under pressure that game. And I don't necessarily want one team to win, one team to lose. It's never about that. But on that occasion, I was glad that the Black and Whites won because um, it just it just took a little bit of pressure off, off Radders. I think that's where the, the famous songs come from now, isn't it, Joe? 20-0 and you uh, yeah. effed it up. Um, <laughs> it's funny you say it Barry because we, we had Scott on recently Scott Taylor on and he puts that game down as his favourite ever derby that he's played in like like for those exact reasons you know uh, Radders was his first season that he had his full strength team that the players that he wanted to bring in um, and perhaps the beginning of the season didn't go particularly to plan he's 20-0 down at you know at the, obviously the most feast his rivals and, you know, they managed to come back and, yeah, and you could see the relief on probably Radford's face at the end of the game. There's passion everywhere. And as I said, you know, when I when I spoke about Hull in general, it splits households, it splits families. Um, you might have, you know, had an experience as a youngster that, that swayed you from, from that to... Um, either side of Hull, East or West, or you might have been born in one side, which means you, you couldn't have any other allegiances other than where you were born. But I do know Radders was born in East and obviously, you know, coached Hull FC and, and that that loyalty was never in question. He was always a black and white through and through. So I just think the great games and I, and I love to see the, the local talent coming through. Joe Cater, for me now, what a great kid he is. But you think back to Lee Radford and, in, and indeed Scott Taylor. Um, what's the team called who, who tagged coaches? Be- Beverly. Not Beverly, is it? Beverly, yeah. yeah. Beverly, so my, my son my son plays for Waterhead. And uh, I went over with Waterhead with my mum and dad, just supporting my son. And uh, what a beautiful place Beverly is. Obviously, that's the posh end of all. Is that She's one, where the posh it? people live. Yeah, he's, that, not, yeah. he's not slumming it there, is he? <laughs> well, funny enough, Barry, actually, I play for Beverly, so um, there's a oh, bit of a lovely, connection there. Um, yeah. So we're just going to move on to probably other derby games that, that that you've actually played in, then, Barry. So obviously the Leeds Bradford one at the height of Super League that was really intense. Did you did you when you was at Wigan? Did you play in a, a Wigan Saints derby back back in the day? No, no, I didn't manage to. I only had a short spell at, at Wigan and um, I managed to miss the Good Friday. I think I was probably injured, so I, I'm going to say it was maybe three weeks before that um, and I, I dislocated my shoulder. I had a pretty bad run at Wigan, so I, I went there, played the first sort of eight or ten games, 
uh, injured my groin, ended up having an operation on my groin and then came back, injured my shoulder, dislocated my shoulder and didn't get that fixed. But come back at the back end of the year in the old winter season to try and get myself in the frame for the finals, the, the Challenge Cups and um, uh, end of season final, which was at Old Trafford, which wasn't a grand final. It was just a premiership final. Um, but I wasn't fit. I was miles off and, and miles behind in the pecking order as well. So played in, in a couple of um, what they call the Law Cups, which is Rochdale and Oldham, being an Oldhamer, um, playing against local rivals, often a bit like Hull and Hull FC. Uh, Hull and Hull KR, you'd have lads who were born in one place playing for another and, and there was always that intense rivalry. So, so Leeds-Bradford was just, I would say, on another level for me because... It was the best of the best. Bradford were right at their pomp. Um, big packs. Um, they always liked to have a, a big pack, whether it was Matthew Elliott, Brian Smith, Brian Noble coaching coaching those Bradford players. They always wanted the big pack. They always tried to have a physical, intimidating pack, but um, I don't think we we gave much away on those on those stakes at, at the Rhinos at the time. So, so good memories, good times, and people say. You know, what's your favourite ground? What's your favourite atmosphere? And if if it's not Edinburgh, because I can't pick that one, it would always I'd always say Odsall because you know you could feel you could feel the animosity. It was an intimidating place. You know the 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 changing rooms that this put us in were always that bit colder, that bit smaller than what we were used to, and they didn't make things easy. So you you had a little bit of resentment as well. And back in the day. Not only did they beat us on the field, they used to go boozing in our pubs as well. They used to be in the skyrack after the matches, drinking our beer and celebrating where we should be celebrating. I think you you never knew as well at Odsall what the weather was going to be like. It was always like four seasons in one day, wasn't it, Odsall? It could be bright sunshine one minute and thick snow like it is at the moment. So, you you know, those conditions to, to, to manage as well. But I think in, in its day... The Leeds Bradford derby was probably, well, in my view anyway, bigger than what the Wigan Saints is at the moment because Bradford were riding the wave of a of a, of a major sort of off-field success as well with Bullmania and you know they, they were packing out Oddsall and the intensity you could see on the pitch. So, can you, for for the benefit of our listeners, put into words what it was like to play? in a game of such intensity that was non-stop for 80 minutes, really. Special days, Craig, because what you had is you had the two best teams with predominantly all the best players, a ground that could fit 24, 25, 26,000, depending on what, you know, what the weather was like. Loud, atmospheric. They always went over the top on pre-match. Um, and I can, I can, you know, I can directly recall one specific match where they had girls dancing, and there was a group. I can't remember the group, but it was a famous group from from the eighties. The group was singing some of their hits before the game, and there were girls in. I'm probably going to say. Were they scantily clad? Yeah, they were. They, they weren't knickers and bra because I think knickers and bra would have covered more bits of the flesh up. But <laughs> it was very, very distracting. I, I can't remember whether we won or lost that match, but I remember the main, really the, main, <laughs> the main focus of that warm up were listen, concentrate on what's going on. It stopped, stop, stop <laughs> gawping at them, and that was everybody. 
to one another. But um, yeah, they just, I think for a long time, they led the way. The, the sad thing for me with, with Bradford was they, they never had any sort of foundations. They never had anything to underpin that top level. It was always about the top tier, the top team. They put a lot of resource into the to the players of the day, play, paying the best Kiwis, the best Aussies, uh, the best around, and, and maybe not as much into the juniors and, and think about people like John Bateman. Mm. You know, he's probably one of the best forwards in the world. He started and began his career at the Bradford Bulls before he went to Wigan and people forget that yeah. long before he was a favourite for, for the Warriors, he was a he was a, a an absolute warrior for um for the Bradford Bulls side. And Sam Burgess to a degree as well, because he you know he, he started yeah. there, didn't he? And he, he wasn't there for that long before for him, I think you, you would argue um thankfully he got picked up in the in the NRL and has had an amazing career out there. Um, but I think it was during those games, Barry, that I think one of the the most fierce rivalries was born on the pitch um, between yourself and and Stuart Field, and and uh, what was that like? What, you know, did did that? Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Cause... I'm going to say brilliant because I came out on the better side of it, so <laughs> you might get a different answer from uh, from Stu. But yeah, I do, do you know? And we've told. Our individual stories, obviously my story is different to his and uh, he was a very, very good player. Uh, and at the age of about 21, 22, um, as good as anybody in the game, got to his mid-20s and, and he was the best forward in the world. So my attitude would always be that I, as my, my team's disruptor, uh, need to get to your best players um, and I always like the bigger ones and um, you know at Bradford I, I could have me pick <laughs> Big Baloof, Big Paul Anderson Brian McDermott of course Big Joe Vergana uh, and Stu were the awesome foursome but but there were, there were you know lots and lots of forwards within those Bradford ranks that when they were on and JP um would would have been in, in 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 the early stage of his career then Jamie Peacock it, it just depended but I enjoyed what we had me and Stu because we uh, we stood toe to toe many times and and and, and very often and I, and I can look back retrospectively now and, and look at it and say yeah I think if I'd have been watching that I'd have been transfixed with it as well and being the person who was more often than not the antagonizer when I was told by different people, I had to play the game properly. It spoiled it a li- little bit for me. Did it ever, ever flood off the pitch, Barry? Was it you texting each other during the week or calling each other during the week? You just knew on game day that, you know, because you went after each other. You know, you both had X's on, on your back, didn't you, for each other? And... Yeah, a lot of the time. A lot of yeah. the time. No, we didn't. We didn't. For a, for a good period of time, we didn't speak to each other. Um, and sometimes when we were in Great Britain camps, together we were forced to to deal with each other but I think that's the thing you've got to understand about professional sport and um, I'm in the world of business now as well as working for Sky of other business interests and I try to explain to people that you don't have to get on with everybody who you work with you don't have to be best friends with everybody in your working environment in a rugby league environment all you've got to do is rate what they bring to the table you've got to look at them across the table and say I would go to war with you alongside me. Um, and the choice is straight in it. Would you rather have them over the other side of the trenches or would you rather have them alongside you? Now, I'm honest when I say I would 
I've had Stuart Fielding at the side of me because I knew he wouldn't give up. And as I say, mid-20s, he was the best forward in the world and set the platform for Bradford, set the standard for, for a forward in, in our sport for a long time. But when he was on the other side of the fence, then then I knew I had to, you know, I had to outplay him. I had to outthink him, be, be, you know, be, be more physical and, and try and, put him off his game a little bit, which I tried to, and uh, sometimes I got it right, sometimes I got it wrong. Just on that, Barry, you, you say about you had to outthink him. Um, I just wondered if you could give an insight for our listeners, how you prepare yourself mentally um, in readiness for a battle against packs like Bradford's, not just Stuart Fielding, but obviously that was uh, a challenge that you knew would be upon you on the pitch. What, you know, the game... Today, um, talks heavily a lot about um, mental preparation and being strong enough physically as well as mentally. But what, was it the same then, or had it, had it started to creep into the game, or how did you prepare yourself mentally for for challenges like that? When when I set out, think I mean, be good with my game plan, be good with with my responsibility for the teams that I that I played with and the players that I was playing with. With Graham Murray, um, Dean Bell at the start, but Dean Bell didn't didn't last too long. So Graham Murray, to a lesser extent, Dean Lance, um, Daryl Powell, Tony Smith at the back end. You need to understand your role in the side. So what's my role as a front rower? We're always pretty simple. It was always about gaining metres uh, defensively. Not being a weak link, making sure I'm I'm not letting tiredness and fatigue and and you know, clocking off mentally once or twice in that line, making sure I'm not a weak link um, and, and I'm not a weak spot for, for Bradford or whoever I was playing to find. So being right up to date with the people that you're playing against. So in today's um, rugby league environment, what they do is they'll do a lot of work. They'll do a lot of sit down in front of a laptop, in front of a computer like we are now, watching their opposition, watching the set players, watching how... how their habit is as a team and how that then creates chances and how they look to score tries off it. So I'd look at my opposition, I'd look at me my opposite number, I'd know that Stu was a left arm carry, very little footwork, uh, big jaw, compulsive offload. Brian McDermott would look for the floor, big below, had a, had a few things, few strings to his butt and just get that in my mind. So if in the 1.2 seconds, I'm getting back, get on side, looking up and nominating who's in front of me. If I knew instinctively what they could and couldn't do, I could sort of adjust the pace that I would get up, um, know whether I'd be looking to push off onto the next player and, and all that. And I mean, I know I've gone a bit, you know, probably a little bit too technical for, for, for the question that you asked, but it's, it's a lot of things being a professional sportsman. It's it's definitely you've got to have skill, you've got to have talent, you've got to have ability, but it's the small things. It's looking after those really small details of your week that being a professional, that's the difference between playing at Beverly, who were training on Tuesday and Thursday, or playing at Leeds Rhinos, where you've got, you know, in essence, you've got about six hours every day where you can put your, put your, your efforts mentally and physically into perfecting, perfecting your skill. 
But I suppose it's it's those small things which gives you the confidence on on game day, on match day, that you're going to perform to 200%, Barry, isn't it? It gives you that confidence that you know who you're coming up against, what the challenge is, and that you've prepared yourself to be able to match that, and if not, and better that. Would you say Leeds at the time, obviously, was very successful. Would you say that you were doing more of that than other teams, or was you just doing it better? No, no, I think, you know, you... It, I'd say we were doing it better, but maybe not as not as good as Bradford on their day and, and probably better than them on our day. You play teams like Wigan, and for me as a lanky lad, playing against Wigan, was I always had a little bit extra because I used to play for them. Uh, things didn't go well for me at Wigan, so I wanted every player on that side and, and every member of the board to say, well, we made a mistake getting rid of that. So I, I probably sometimes playing against Wigan had a little bit more emotion than I needed. Um, but sometimes you need emotion. You need you need that emotion to get you get yourself back up off the floor if you make a mistake, if you drop a pass, miss a tackle. And you know, I I liked when I played. I liked to have an emotional element to my game. I remember a story. Just thinking before we come on on this podcast regarding Craig Greenhill. I don't know whether you lads will remember Craig. Yeah, yeah. Greenhill. Uh, knuckles. These yeah, knuckles. But I used to like Buckles, as I used to call him, because he was straight and hard. He used to run hard. He'd always have his buffers up. There wasn't much um, pre-line. He didn't have much passing. He didn't have much offloading in him. And we're playing at the KC. And recently, Craig Greenhill and myself have been chatting over Instagram because, of course, Adam Ma had a... Yeah. And, and um, I saw Adam Ma when he came over and, and, and Craig Greenhill's been asking about Rob Burrow. So this one game at KC, um, Buckles, I'm shouting his name, Buckles, he won't pass, he won't step, and I've sprinted off as fast as I can. Unbeknownst to me, as I'm sprinting, lights have gone out, and that's it, I can't remember anything. But Craig Greenhill had caught the ball and either stepped out of the way in his mind or stepped stepped off his wrong foot, and we ended up clashing heads. He had a big melon, didn't he, Craig Greenhill? <laughs> yes. And it was like bloody concrete and all, and I and I woke up. I came to, and I were on the uh, on the on the bed getting my lip stitched up. I had about eight stitches in in my lip, just underneath my nose. And and I was I was talking to the doctor, and I said, Paul, what's happened? And he said, uh, you you got knocked out, Barry. We had to bring you off. And I said, one question: Did I walk off, or was I carried off? And he said, neither, Barrett. We had to drag you off, spitting, <laughs> swearing, screaming at everybody, which I, again, I had no knowledge of. But that, that was the only thing that bothered me, the fact that I didn't get carried off. Uh, but, yeah, me and Craig Greenell uh, speak a little bit now. And I think a, sh- a text that we shared is the epitome of our sport. And um, he, was, he was just sort of giving some advice on Rob and being there as a mate. And I said, listen, it doesn't matter in our sport, whether you're a friend or a foe, we've all got that common bond and we'd all reach out and we'd all hold out the hand of friendship. And I just thought it was a really, it was a really sort of all encompassing text that, that I think rugby league is, is all about. Yeah. I think, I mean, part of our plan for, for tonight, I think we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit later, Barry, if you, if you don't mind us moving on from that for the time being, but I think you're right. I think, um, what you've just explained there in the last few minutes, I think epitomises the mindset of a rugby league player. And, and 
it's come into question, I think, of in the last few years in relation to because you're taught to try and never show weakness um, and always stay on the pitch as, as much as you can and, and what have you, and, and and sometimes to the detriment of of your own physical um, well-being. But I think as a sport, we look after each other on the field. Um, you know, we we try and rip each other's heads off. I think it's fair to say we we want to win. I think no matter what level you play rugby league at. I think those those characteristics and that those fundamentals are are in place from such an early age, and no matter what level you, you reach, they remain with you. Um, so I, I think you've just. I explained. think it comes from our upbringing. It comes from our upbringing as well. The majority of us are from modest beginnings. Listen, I weren't poor by any way, shape, or form, but I was brought up in a two two up two down. My dad was a minimum wage earner. Uh, my mum had a part-time job and then went into the full-time environment when me and my sister were old enough. And those, you know, that beginning, that that rock and foundation that you start off with. I'm lucky. I'm from a from a, a big Irish Catholic family. Loads of women, loads of love, loads of support. Not everybody has an house with a mum and a dad at the same time, but we all come from. A very humble beginning. We want to escape that environment. And, you know, we know that we've got to work hard to get out of there. Sometimes that that manifests itself in, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to train hard, I'm going to be fitter, faster, stronger than everyone else. And then other times, it's, I'm going to do anything that I need to do on the field. And whether that's cutting corners, cheat-shotting people, punching people, you know, doing an 80-metre cover chase tackle that that means that my team win or whatever that those morals ethics that work ethic that we've got I don't think we should let go of that but you're right we're all asking each other especially us of a certain age in in our late 30s 40s 50s who are looking back now thinking is it correct is it right that that we'll get up and get back on the field even though our even though we've got those birds flying round at the top of our head like the cartoon character. So, yeah, I think we have a bit of thinking to do in our game. Yeah, but obviously, I think the main premise is, is that it's just that will, isn't it? Just never give in. Don't let your teammates mm. down. You know, it's that team ethic and that, that team mentality that you put your, your team first before yourself. But, yeah, I'm sure those, those conversations and those discussions will take place, Barry. I just want to touch on on one thing, and that's the role of a prop forward. Probably in in today's game, and yeah, you're not <laughs> you're not that old, Barry. But you know, but, but back when 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 you played, um, I don't want to do you a disservice. Obviously, you was a very very good player, but you played on the line. I, I think that's fair to say. You played on the edge of that line, and sometimes you went over it. You was in the, the the enforcer on the pitch. You was there to maybe try and ruffle a few feathers and and, and intimidate the opposite number. Do you think that's still the case with a with a prop forward nowadays in 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 the current Super League as it stands? No, I don't think it is. And and you know this generation will look at my generation and think, my God, it was like barroom brawling. But then my generation looked at Big Jim Mills, for instance, and we looked at that and thought, holy moly, it's like the Wild West. So the game <laughs> will always will always evolve. It will always hopefully for the betterment of the game and just touching on back what I said about, you know, we've got a lot of questions to ask. I want us to ask those questions, but I don't want us to lose what rugby league is. I think the balance has got to be right 
Um, I'm willing to listen to the concussion and, and all those and all those serious conversations, but I don't want to lose what our game's about. So going back to the so the, the the way that we played the game in 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 my day, you know, it was of its time. It was the way that everybody played. It was it was about getting over the top of your opposition, physically being dominant, um, intimidating. Yes, but not all the time. I always like to think that I played the way that the people in front of me want, wanted to play. If you were playing against St. Helens, for instance. They were quick. They were fast. They were skillful. There were no time for fighting. There were no time for for um, for for evening up scores. If you gave a penalty away, before you know it, you're you're six nil, and then they've scored two and three tries back to back. So I always like to think I played the game the way that the the people that were were in the eights and tens and elevens and twelves in front of me were willing to play it. So Hull FC, Hull KR, you know, they they would always want to play the game. In a skillful way, there were always a lot of offloads, a lot of speed, a lot of pace. So, so you had to match it with, with them in that respect. And um, you, you do get asked, and and I know now, having having been around people who played in the seventies, uh, and thinking to myself, I'm glad I played in my era rather than in what is now. And I think the people from the seventies. And 80s will think that they were that you know they were glad to play in their era and not in our era, which was slightly more sanitized. And then the scrutiny that they get put under now is just you know on a, on another level. It's like Big Brother gone gone <laughs> berserk. There's cameras all over the place. There's there's analysts, ex-players, ex-referees, everybody that can you know, have an opinion on the game is either got a microphone in their hand or they've got the phone in their hand and they're giving a, an a up to second, up to the date analysis and appraisal of a tackle or a try or, or everything that goes on in our sport. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Barry. It's like, you know, the, some shoulder charges or some is a contact with the head. We, we, we look at, we slow it down, we break it, you know, section by section and we, we proper forensically analyse a, yeah. a certain situation where you think, you know, the the game's going at that much of a pace. It's very hard. Sometimes, like you say, it hits the shoulder, hits the head, hit, and yeah. then, but the referee will send him off. It's, I know you've got to, it's player welfare and all of that, but like you say, are we doing a disservice to the product by sanitising it? I, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a tough question to answer. I, I think. don't think there is, I don't think there is a black and white answer. I think we're always going to be playing. And being on that fine line between between danger and entertainment, I love our sports physicality. And you know, anybody that listens to to six six games on Sky TV will hear me say, "I don't think it's a red." It's six times out of six because I want to see the physical element. I want to see thirteen players on the field tussling it out for those two valuable competition points or that or that cup victory or whatever. I hate seeing players sent off and. You know, I know I get a bit of shit. I know I get a bit of stick off people saying, "Well, he would say that, wouldn't he?" He he were he were always at it when he were playing. But uh, you know, I like to think that I've an understanding that you can mistime things. You know, the speed that the game is played means there's absolutely no room, there's no margin for error. Um, so how do we how do we make it better? Well, we make it better at grassroots level. We make it better on a Sunday morning for our under tens, our under elevens, and the tackle technique that 
that you roll out in your in your level two and your level three coaching badges means that whether you're whether you're a player's dad or you're a play, or or you're a coach that's coached at that level for ten or fifteen years, you've got to coach good practice. And we'll try and make it as safe as possible without losing that explosiveness that we all like. I think that's that's really interesting listening to because I, I I like um, your realistic approach to to commentary, Barry, during the games because I, I I've been I, I think a little bit critical of of when I've been watching a game of, of accusing games of it's like trial by TV in some matches um, replay after replay after replay until they seem to get the result that they reckon everybody wants. And I know that, I know the eighth immortal Andrew Johns wants to do away with, with, with video, with the bunker in, in the NRL, but video referees yeah. completely do it. Do you think that by the introduction of the video referee or the video footage, has it sort of reduced limited um, the the effectiveness of our referees from the point of view of they know that they've got a little bit of a safety net by that person in the rear giving them the the heads up about something that's happened. Do you do you think? Well, would you like to see us go back to just that the referee having total control over the game and everyone accepting that, like a player, the referee will make a mistake as well, but let the game flow. You, you've got about five or six questions in that Sorry. one statement. Okay, so just bear with me. If I forget anything, remind me. So do I like the re- video referee? I love the video referee. Um, I love the drama it brings, especially when you've got a live crowd there. Did he get it down? Has he got a foot in touch? Let's have a look at it from a reverse angle. I like that. I think that, that brings an extra layer of, of drama and you know, we like to look at it and we like to, oh, it hasn't he done well to keep his foot up in the air for that last, you know, I like that. I don't like when our ref, from the reverse angle behind the sticks, his ass is in the frame and you're trying to look at the ball being put down, but you can't see the ball being put down because the ref's there. So that's where I would get frustrated and say, you're in a better position than us. So you just give the try, back your own judgment on it. But I think we're probably guilty, all of us, by wanting the first one and the consequence of the first one. Let's see if his foot's up in the air and he's, you know, there's a blade of grass in it. That We love that, which makes the second bit the consequence that the referee has to think about a thousand things. So he, he'll say, and very often we get the... Um, the referee's um, mic in our in our cans in our in our headphones, and you'll hear him say, "Just check, just check this, check that," and he's got a list of about six things. Now, I'd like to see him back his own ability. One of the other things you said there was, you know, that he, he might get somebody telling him in his ear that there's something wrong. I don't like that part of our game, and I don't like, and it was a nasty habit that players picked up a couple of years ago where. There's a bit of a, you know, we'll talk about com- um, um, contact with the head. If a player gets something that's anywhere near, if he stays on the floor, that moment in time, that pause in play makes everybody go, what was that? Yeah. And then there might be a, a bit of a message into the ref. Well, I think you've missed this. Or I think there was a hand in between the legs. Or I think, there, you know, they, they sort of then start that back. 
that discussion and, and that, that dialogue is going on. I don't like that. I like mm. to see, like we said probably 10 minutes ago, now you get up and unless there's anything wrong with you, you get up and you play your ball. The trouble is, the contradiction to that is, is the new way of thinking. If you feel like you're injured, you'll, you stay down. That's what players are told. If you feel like you're injured, you stay down and we'll come on and tell you whether you're fit to play on. So again, that balance of getting that right where it's genuinely looking after the player or the player trying to find the penalty, trying to find an advantage in it, you know, I, I think it's a bit I think it's a bit of a shit house that stares down when there's nothing wrong with him just because he wants a penalty. But that's the old fashioned head on my shoulders. I don't I generally don't know whether he's injured. Yeah, you're straying into football there, aren't you? Like you know, when yeah. they're dying on the floor to, to win a penalty or, or to win a free kick, it's it's straining in, into that area. And, you know, as a sport, we've always pr- prided ourselves of being, you know, that tough physical sport. Yeah. I wouldn't want to lose it that comes down, selling point. It comes be. down to the coach, though. What happens, Joe, is they'll be in a video review. It'll be on a, you know, they played on Friday. They're having a, a review on a, on a Saturday morning. The coach has put all this stuff together. And the coach is the master of, of what's going on in his environment. He can either say to Scott Taylor, now Tag would never stay down in a thousand years, but he might say, listen, Tag, you know, you you're, you need to stay down there because we felt like there was this, that that coach can can set the, the, the philosophy for the team. He can set the mindset for the team. Or he can say, listen, Tag, you get up there. I don't care what's wrong with you. I don't care whether we get a penalty or not. I want you up and I want us to be strong in our in our mindset. So, yeah, again, it comes down to individuals. It comes down to the coach. What does he value? Does he value the integrity of the game and his team and that match? Or does he want the penalty because he wants two points? Because if he don't win, he's going to get the bullet. Yeah, I think we're just going to... I've got I've got a question which I I put on my list, Barry. So we're going to move on to a, um, a totally different topic and... And this is Hull FC related, and my first ever Charles Cup final was at was at uh, Millennium Stadium, Hull FC versus Leeds in 2005. Rubbish. Yeah, <laughs> I what, what a game! Seat than you did. Then <laughs> that's what I was coming on to. Obviously, during the week, or especially on 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 the day itself, it was all about Keith seeing his fitness and would he play, wouldn't he play, and unfortunately. Well, unfortunately for you, I suppose, you know, he did play and that meant that you didn't make the squad. Did you know during the week or do you have an inkling during the week that he wasn't fit and that that you should be playing? Or I, I was just trying to probably get in your in your head a little bit. Was you a bit resentful that Keith seen you played that day knowing that you was 100% ready to go? Am I resentful of Keith Senior? Mm. <laughs> no. Um Good mate of mine, Keith, and I, I don't put any of what happened on the, on that day. To but Keith, we talked coach. about it a million times. To the outsider, it looked like there was eighteen names for seventeen shirts. The truth of that game is, you know, the coach and me weren't getting on at the time. Um, he had a he had a well he had twenty two names in two thousand and five. If you remember, you won't do, but we were winning every week. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he had 22 names. He had to squeeze into 17 shirts. I was sort of on my Scarborough warning the week before. We played against Bradford. I didn't have a great game. I didn't have a shocker, but I didn't have a great game. And it was just, you know, you're the 18th name on the sheet. Now, um, 
the coach and me um, for a long while after, you know, didn't, didn't, you know, didn't seem to find the right page. But um, Keith did what we'd all do. You, you've talked about it. He's put his yeah. hand up. He's I'm fit to play. Um, I think the more to give him his due, Keith. I think the morning of the game, he did tell the coach that he wasn't fit to play, and the coach persuaded him to play. Which, yeah, Keith, Keith, as hard as they come, as tough as Teak, playing five hundred and whatever games he played, he did. He didn't miss many, Keith. But um, it looked to the outsider that if Keith hadn't played. Barry had played and we've had a better chance away. I think the, the dynamics of the team and the makeup of the team meant that um, young Wardy, Danny Ward, um, sorry, Danny Ward, who was young Wardy at the time, who, who'd have been sort of, I don't know, 24, 25, was just goosed and he couldn't he couldn't make up the space. And I think it was Cookie. I think it was Paul yeah, Cook. Yeah. Yeah. Paul Cook scored that great try and it took the game away from from Leeds, if you remember rightly, Marcus Bay made a mistake, passed the ball beyond it. Marcus Bay never made mistakes. Danny Ward was as fit as any forward um, in our club, and it was just it was just Hull's day. Um, I'd have loved to have played, and I, I had some in that sort of two years or four or five. I had some some players on that on that Hull side who uh, who I felt like I had the measure, and you know I had good games against Hull in those couple of years, but. Listen, I, I can't complain about my career. I've got everything there is to win, Joe, and I've got so many great memories and so many uh, great friends that that I can't complain. I would have liked to have played in that game. Um, the result may or may not have been different on the day, but it, it was a bit frustrating for me. I was definitely sick uh, and a bit and a bit you know a bit miffed when I didn't get uh, didn't get a chance to run out, but I can't. I can't do anything about it now, so consequently, I don't waste no effort on it. What, what's a Scarborough warning, Barry? Is that if it's you do like something wrong, you get warning. sent to Scarborough? No, no, it's like your last warning. I thought that was a well-known saying. That it's like oh, I've not heard warning. it before. Yeah, I've been like I said, I've been in a couple of weeks, and it's like, listen, Barry, you know, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. If you don't get it right next week, you're not in. <coughs> Scarborough warning, yeah, this is your last warning. No, You've had a few of them, Craig. Everything is a school day. Everything is a school day with Barry. <laughs> so, thanks for clearing that up, Barry. Yeah, much appreciated. Um, what What would you say is was the pinnacle of your career, or is the pinnacle of your, of your career? Is it Great Britain, or is it winning the, you know, winning the trophies? They're all They're all in a nice little. Nice little box with a nice bow on it that's in the attic now, and and I love my my playing career and I, I you know very often people will ask ex-sportsmen ex-players you know would you you know would you like to go back and do you wish you were a player now and some people say no I don't I I loved playing and I would go back and play tomorrow but not as a 48 year old uh, metal shoulder bad knees bad back bad neck I wouldn't like that I'd like to be 28 again and be running a muck rampaging my way up and down the M62, knocking hell out of everybody. But I just loved the 16 years I had as a as a professional sportsman, lucky enough to win finals, um, fortunate enough to learn the lessons of losing finals as well. And you mentioned that 05 final. I didn't play in the 98 grand final, the first one either, because I was in the naughty corner with Graham Murray. Um, so... I think the lessons of life are all over if you choose to to look at them and learn by them. So 
I learned a lot of them, and I learned a lot of them while people were watching as well. So, if I was to, if you was to ask me, what is the one thing that that you're most proud of? I think it's probably the '99 Challenge Cup final because my son Billy, who's nearly 25 now, was the mascot. It was a great team, great bunch of lads. Um, I played during the periods at Leeds where they were poor. When I first joined, they were sort of second in the table. The year after, they were bobbins and couldn't win an argument. 96, 97, they started to climb. 98, they lost in that first grand final. But in 99, we had um, we had three games on the way to that final that could have been you know, just as competitive at Wembley. And we, we beat uh, a London Broncos that had Martin Afire, Sean Edwards, and some iconic London Broncos players. And, uh, yeah, just a, a, a wonderful memory, not just for me, but the chance of sharing it with my family just makes it that extra special in, in our house. Six more tackles is cool. There it is. There's a six-again buzzer. Craig, fire away. Right, Barry, question number one. Who's the best Leeds coach you've worked under? Graham Murray. Question number two. Would you like to see... Yorkshire versus Lancashire back. Definitely. Just so I can see the mighty Red Rose lift that trophy again. <laughs> Question number three. How much makeup does it take for Terry O'Connor to be HD ready? A lot. Because not only did he do it, they need to do his two faces, they need to do his forehead and then the top of his ball patch as well. <laughs> Question number four. Who dresses Phil Clark for his presenting role and what qualifications do they have? Legally blind, I think. That's the qualification. <laughs> Question number five. Would Barry McDermott of today advise... Well, sorry. What would Barry McDermott of today advise a 22-year-old Baz before he faced Australia in 1994 for Wigan? They can't run without their heads. <laughs> and question number six we've, we've, we've touched on this a little bit earlier on but reportedly Stuart Fielding once said that your rivalry was old book versus young book how important do you think rivalries like yours and Stuart's are for the development of young players the development of young players probably um, as the game has changed not so much for the young players for the old players sat at home with the Sky remote in their hand, I think it's integral. I'd love to see more rivalries and I'd love to see just something a little bit different um, than we've got now. But maybe that's just my 70s and 80s mindset. We're going to move on now to... Um post-career and obviously taking up the the role that you've got with Sky Sports was that something you always wanted to do that you always had in in your mind or did somebody approach you think saying to Barry I think you'd be good at this and we'd like you to become part of the broadcasters I wonder how you you fall into that into that scene it's easy to think that it's easy to think that I just turned up and started doing TV because I seem to be okay and what what people might not be aware of is that I always did radio I always did whether it was Manchester Radio, which was GMR, or I did Radio Leeds uh, with James Dayton and always put my hand up to do club stuff, Leeds stuff. So 
whenever we were at a sponsor's night or a fan's night, people would hand me the mic. I like to think I'm quite humorous. Some people think my sense of humour is very poor. Some people laugh and you you take your pick which side of the fence you're on. I'm not going to change for, for bloody nobody. So I just sort of always step forward. My mum used to say, you've got a complete lack of a fear of failure, Barry. That's why I always put one foot in front of another and I, I managed to get myself in so many different places, in so many scrapes, in so much trouble. Um, but again, I have so many different lifetime, lifetime, life-changing experiences that you know you couldn't you couldn't write. I mean, I know I did write a book, and even that in itself, there's no way a lad from Oldham and um, you know the the eyes and laws that I have, there's no way that that they would have had the right to 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 put pen to paper and, and release a book, and I did, and I, and you know it's the best thing I ever did. So. So Sky was something that came at the end of, I would say, eight or ten years of doing odds and sods here and there. But um, I did have a, I did have a desire to be a, to be a coach. I wanted to mould a group of men, mould a team, get them to play the game that I wanted to. And when I first retired, the the role that I had was working with the kids, working with the juniors at the Rhinos, and I really liked it. I really found that that was my calling. But then it meant that time was freed up and I could go and do more radio. I could go and do more media stuff and get involved in the, the sponsors' nights and the fans' nights. And it's just sort of went on from there, really. I think you're doing the uh, the Forward Union proud as well, Barry, because for me, I think you, you, you're a very articulate person to listen to. Um, and for a northern sport, I mean, it, it, you're not often... You know, I mean... Could you imagine someone like um, I don't know Nick Fozard or or, or um, oh, forgot, forgot you're throwing his some name. stereotypes out here, Craig? Aren't you? you are. <laughs> I don't think Foz will appreciate you throwing his name forward. Why don't you throw some of the real pickles like Terry O'Connor? Can you imagine him being given a microphone and asked to to get out there? No, hey, listen, I take that as a real compliment, Craig. I'm not I'm not a very academic. Uh, I wasn't an academic student at school. I was I was the proper you know, I was your archetypal, you know, good at sport, but don't really like maths and English and, and sat on the thick table uh, all, all the way through my uh, my schooling. But as I got older, as I, as I learned how I learn, um, I tried to develop myself and, and I care about our sport. I think that's the top and bottom. What I try and be is honest. I try and be as honest as I can in every situation. I can be guilty sometimes of, of seeing the sunny side of, of the street because I want to portray our game in the best light possible. Sometimes you have to call a spade a spade and, and say that things that are happening, you have to call those honestly. Uh, but more often than not, I just try and see the, the entertainment. I try and point out the skill. I try and point out the difficulty in what's going on and hopefully get get people to appreciate what's going on but I, but I love our sport I've got a lot to thank it for it's brought me from as I say two up two down on an estate sandwiched in between three council estates for for a guy that was was a builder a joiner and and it's shown me the world let me travel the world and meet all kinds of wonderful people do the um so you, the the Sky commentary team that's in position at the moment, like yourself, Terry, um, Brian Carney, Clarkie, Wellesley, 
off 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 sort of camera so when 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 you're not on air so to speak during a game do you ever have any um not heated debates but sort of conflicts of opinion on what's happening on a yeah. pitch yeah because we're all different we're all different you everybody knows that Tez and I met when we were very young we've been mates best mates for bloody 30 years now so everybody knows that you only have to listen to a game and you can sense that that we can we interact with each other, we flow, we sort of go in and out of each other to the point where sometimes my wife doesn't know who's speaking, whether it's me or Tez, because we have such a, a fluid way of, of us inter interacting or you know, you know, that 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 combination and, and that that dynamic that we've got is good. We don't always think the same way. Sometimes we have a different perspective. So you put into the mix two wingers. You put into the mix um, Clarky, who who um, who has a very different way of looking at the game. He has a he has a very, you know, I would say probably tunneled 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 way of of approaching the game, and he doesn't care whether people like or agree with what he he says. He's not bothered. He's strong enough in his convictions to say it, believe it. Um, he wears the clothes that he wears because he thinks that they're fashionable. He doesn't care whether you like them or not, even though, as rugby lads, as soon as he turns up, we're all taking the piss out of him saying, what have <laughs> you got on? But he doesn't mind. Um, Wellesley, again, um, knowledgeable, um, passionate, articulate, educated, carny, knowledgeable, articulated, uh, educated, uh, and me and Tez are just you know, rough asses from the front row that, that knows what it, you know, no, knows what it takes to, to win the game and, and hopefully try and open that Pandora's box up to the people at home who don't perhaps know the real nuances and intricacies of our game. That's that's our sort of desire, to let everybody into the trade secrets. Does um, does Clarky one the UFC fans up on purpose then, do you think? Or has he, he doesn't got mind anybody. No, he genuine hatred anybody. for us. No, no, listen, he doesn't wind anybody up on purpose. That's just him. <laughs> That's just him. If you take a dislike to him because he's he's having a go at your team, it matters not a jot to Phil Clark. So um he speaks that way about, you know, everybody and there's a there's a sort of an un, an unwritten conspiracy theory that he only talks about Wigan and he loves <laughs> Wigan. Well you go to Wigan and the and the Wigan fans will say the same. Why do you hate us, Phil? But you know, it, it, it's the different dynamics within that team. You chuck in Bill Arthur, um, you chuck in Mark Wilson, who started working with us last year, Stuart Pike, who started working with us last year, and you've just got a real variety of 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 who looks at the game in, in their own way and then tries to bring that into the eyes and ears of, of everyone sat at home. I love it. I love working with, with different people. Obviously, me and O'Connor go back years and we can... You know, we can go through a game now pretty much on autopilot. But sometimes when I'm sat at the side of Weldy, he'll say things that challenge my way of thinking and, and vice versa. And, and likewise, if, I, if I'm doing a game with Phil, when he sees something, he sees it in a completely different way to either to, to the way that I do. Is there a scramble, Barry, for, um, I don't know, when it's when it's Leeds away at Catalan, Wigan away at Catalan, how, how, does, that get, how does that game get sort of uh, dished out to the, to the commentary team? Well, I'm going to let you into a secret, lads, as long as you promise not to tell everybody. We, we commentate on that, what they call off-tube. 
So the broad host broadcaster in France will film it all. They'll have their own commentary team and those pictures will get shot up to a satellite. The satellite will send it to London, of which Bill Arthur, me, Tez, will be in a booth with our cans on watching the game, commentating as live. So it's very, very, very rare we get out to Catalan these days. It might be a couple of times a year and you'll know when we're out there because we're never off the field, we're never off the pitch. <laughs> so, so it's not as glamorous as you might think. It's a train down to London uh, and a train back at the, you know, Saturday night at 10 and 11 o'clock at night. How hard has it been to commentate during, obviously, the lockdown period, Barry, with no fans, with no atmosphere? I can, I can imagine part of, your, part of your commentary is feeding off that that buzz and electricity around the grounds and to, to try and, I don't know, fill that void with, with, with your voice and try and, obviously, make the game probably sound a bit more intense than it actually is. I bet that's quite hard. It is, it is. You, what you do is you do feed off the crowd uh, I do like to involve the things that are going on at the, at the stadium as well. I can very much identify with being a kid at Watershed and sat on a wall or leaning over a wall trying to get on the TV if somebody's taking a conversion. And, you know, a lot type of stuff that back in the day, you know, nobody had mobile phones that meant that you could post a video and people could look on it. So I still do put myself in 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 the shoes of the person that's on the screen. And if as we did in the in the uh, COVID games, we had the fans who were who were sat at home, and and you'd see the the fans on. And, and I used to try and I mean, admittedly, they were poor jokes, but I used to try and you know involve them and bring them into what we were doing. It was it was very difficult, I think, to create the atmosphere in my mind that would then translate to uh, to a to a bit of a bit of passion at home. But I tried really hard because I knew. And understood the responsibility that you know there was only us watching the game everyone else was watching it on tv there was only us and the rest of the media that were actually that was actually at the ground so i know that the commentary team all of us we understood what a big responsibility that we had for not only the fans of, of our sport but the occasional fan that would normally be in the boozer on a friday night but because the pubs were shut we sat at home watching tv Excellent stuff, Barry. We're coming towards the end of our time, but I think it would be uh, remiss of us not to to move on to our ne- next uh, topic. You touched on it earlier on, mentioning Adam Marr, and, and and I think locally within the whole amateur scene as well, um, we had a, a player at Scala uh, called Lee Newton who, who um, sadly lost his life to, to MND. So we just wanted to not end on a on a on a sort of a, a sour note or a sad note, but you're close friends with Rob Burrow. I just wondered if you could give our listeners an update as how Rob's doing and, you know, what have we got to look forward to by way of uh, helping raise awareness and, and funds for Rob? There's plenty going on in, in 2021, but it's been difficult to get out to see Rob. I've only seen him twice, um, just before and just after Christmas. So texting is about the only exchange we have at the minute. So he's in good spirits. Um, if anybody, and as we record this, last night the Leeds Rhinos Legends shirt for the year, the alternative strip was released. Beautiful white kit with the number seven, 17 stripes, uh, a number of different sort of nods to Rob's 
personal life, which I do know having spoken to Lindsay's wife, they were really pleased with their personal touches on that shirt, which made it made it very special. Um, Kev Sinfield, myself and JP and one or two others, possibly Keith Senior, are looking at something in between the end of the season, which the grand final, um, and then the start of the World Cup. If everything goes back to normal, which God, God hoped it will do, and we'll, you know, we'll get navigate our way out of this uh, situation that we're in. We're going to do some kind of challenge there. Of course, Kev were remarkable and an unbelievable effort for for him um, last year. So we'll do something in the seven in seven um, vein. What what it looks like yet? Yeah, we're still finalising that, but there's quite a few things going on. Uh, I think I guess. Um, my the closest one to my heart is is Burrow Seven, the the racehorse. Um, for those people that don't know, fifty nine quid will get you into the racing club of Burrow Seven. It gets you a twelve month membership. Um, he's been training. He's been training hard. Um, even though we've all been in lockdown, horses in stables have still been functioning, and Burrow Seven has been getting on with it. Getting on with it. Excuse me, getting on with his pre-season. So as as we record this, he's he's not, you know, he's not he's not raced yet. It's hope hopeful. We're all hopeful by the end of March, beginning of April, April, he'll be somewhere. Whether it'll be in Beverly, Weatherby, or one of those, because he's a jumper. Whether it'll be in one of those courses um, locally, that's what we'd like. We'd like to get somewhere in Yorkshire. We'd like to get somewhere near Rob. So, so we can have a, a good day out, a couple of pints and, and toast the victory of, of Borough 7. So there's lots of things. I suppose most people who will be listening to this on a podcast will, will have some kind of platform, social, social media platform. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, get following Rob, get following, you know, Borough 7 or whatever it is that tickles your fancy and keep your eyes and ears open. And uh, all the stuff that has been done for him, I know really lifts him and he appreciates all the love and the support that he's had but he also wants that reflected onto everyone else you know you, you mentioned Lee Newton we talked about Adam Marr there was Phil Stevenson who played at uh, Keithley we've of course got Doddy Weir who's who's leading the way and was a big mentor and role model for Rob early on in his in his disease the truth is MND is everywhere and until you're actually in, uh, touched by it um, you don't fully understand just how just how prevalent it is in society. So we need to do a little bit more work on on those diseases that affect, you know, affect the body like MND. And I think if if anything, there's nothing quite like the rugby league family to to come together in 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 adversity and 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 support each other. So um, here here to everything that you've just said there, Barry, and, and please pass on our. Well wishes to to Rob when you next text him on behalf of everyone who listens to to set restart. Um, I think that's a it's a really poignant moment to 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 bring to an end our our brilliant episode with you, Barry. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Well, I've really enjoyed it. I don't know about yourself. Yeah, it's... thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it. Sorry, Joe. I thought you was talking to me. Um, I listen, did. I just did. just let me know where I send the invoice in. <laughs> <laughs> There's an address at Beverly, I think, needs that. Is there? Oh, there's a lot of money in Beverly. No, listen, lads, on you know, on behalf of everybody that listens to podcasts 
we have to get content out there. The more we talk about our sport, the more people we engage with, whether it's at grassroots level or the top level, the better. So keep doing what you're doing. All the best, lads. No, thanks, Barry. Much appreciated for, for your time. It's been, been fantastic to talk to you. So, yeah, um, we'll hopefully be able to listen to you soon and, and hopefully maybe catch you at a game if we can get there in person. So, no, thanks, Barry. Cheers, boys. Yeah. All the best. Yeah, thanks to Barry McDermott there who joined us on our episode nine of Set Restart. Um, tune in, let us know what you think. Leave us a review on Twitter or on, on Apple Podcasts. And uh, we look forward to bringing you another guest another time. Thank you.